With nearly all U.S. schools closed for the rest of this school year, attention has turned to the goal of reopening them in the fall. But with a vaccine for COVID-19 months, if not years away, that goal looks increasingly uncertain. Many parents won't send their children to school until a vaccine is found. Some educators, especially those who are vulnerable due to age or infirmity, may be unwilling to place themselves at risk, and schools that do open may face rolling closures when the pandemic reappears. So is it time for American schools to bet big on distance learning? Do they have any other choice? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Jeb Bush, former Florida governor and president and chairman of the Foundation for Excellence in Education, an organization he founded in 2009 to promote education reform in the American states. He's also the author of a new Washington Post op-ed entitled, It's Time to Embrace Distance Learning and Not Just Because of the Coronavirus, that will be the focus of our conversation today. Governor Bush, welcome back to the Ednex podcast, and it's an honor to have you as the guest for what happens to be our 200th episode. Oh, wow. What an honor. Thank you, Marty. Hope you are uh, sheltering in place and safe and sound with your family. We are healthy, safe, and doing our best to keep learning. So we are uh, very fortunate in that regard. So I want to get to the recommendations in your op-ed shortly, but I wonder if we could start out by talking more generally about leadership in tough times. You dealt with a variety of crisis situations as governor of Florida, including, I believe, a string of eight hurricanes and four tropical storms over a stretch of just 16 months. What lessons did you draw from those experiences and what advice do you have for the leaders who are making decisions with implications for schools right now? I learned a lot going through the um, anthrax hit Florida. We had uh, 9-11 basically stop travel for a state that desperately needs it and all the hurricanes and natural disasters. Uh, and what I, what, I, what I learned was that you have to have a servant's heart in a crisis. It's not certainly wasn't about me. It was about the people that uh, were scared. They were anxious. They, they were worried about losing their jobs. They didn't know how their children would learn. All of those things come into play. And I think uh, the, the lessons in, a, in an emergency are to be clear and transparent, to tell the truth, give people the facts, uh, don't sugarcoat it, uh, connect with them on a human level because these are emotional times. You have to have empathy. Um, you have to have curiosity because uh, it's you're you're basically playing without a without a net. I mean you're you know you're on a tightrope and you don't know exactly what the outcome is going to be. And this this particular pandemic is so extraordinary because there's so many unknown facts. So seeking out information is really important. Getting the best minds possible. People are always flattered when you ask for their advice, and this is a time to be asking for it. And then give people hope. We're going to get through this. And just as in every disaster or every disruptive time in world history, incredible things happen. When you're forced to do things because you have no other option, generally uh, you do them. Um, I, I read recently in, in uh, quarantine here, doing a lot of reading, and I read that uh, Sir Isaac Newton discovered uh, gravity in a pandemic. That's right. When Cambridge was closed and they sent him away for the year and Next thing you know, we have gravity and, and calculus. Unbelievable. I mean, it, just economic progress happens during times of disruption. And certainly as it relates to education, I think there's huge potential here if we pause and reflect on the things that we are doing to adapt them to the new world that we're moving towards. So that kind of leadership uh, is being found 
in a, and by the way, I would also add in this hyper-partisan world, um, this isn't about politics. And people don't want to hear about how you got an R by your name or a D by your name. This is the time to put that aside completely. In the midst of a presidential election year, that's really hard to imagine doing in this hyper-partisan world. But thankfully, we're a bottom-up country, and mayors and governors are leading this charge, as they should. And uh, if you look at the great leaders across the spectrum of politics, um, it doesn't really matter what their political affiliation is. And so I, I, I do see signs of that kind of leadership across the country. Well, that's where I was going to ask about next, is as you look at what's going on, especially with respect to decisions about K-12 school systems, uh, I know this is something you all at the foundation are keeping track of. Uh, what do you see that is encouraging? What do you see that's less so? Well, we haven't gotten to any um, of the major school districts announcing um, concrete plans yet. And I think that's appropriate. I think they need to really think through this because it's very complicated. Um, but we've seen uh, districts rise to the challenge during the pandemic when students had were, were sent home and so were teachers. Miami-Dade County, my home county, uh, basically had been preparing for this, um, partially because they prepare for hurricanes. And so they had, they were trained, uh, the teachers, you know, had teacher development uh, training on this. And um, they had uh, the ability to quickly adjust to make sure that devices were available for kids that didn't have it and access to the internet in creative ways existed. Other large school districts and many others basically had the theory, if we can't provide education to everyone, we're not going to provide it to anyone. And to me, that is shameful. I mean, to think that that's kind of a, that's a very defeatist attitude. So there are best practices that'll merge on how to deal with this. And as it relates to the opening, gosh, um, I, you know, what I'm hearing is that if you believe in social distancing, which I still think, I mean, if there's a, you know, uncertain what, what kind of, whether children are at risk here, um, but I think an abundance of caution, you have to be careful there. And they certainly can transmit the infection to, uh, to people working in the schools. So I think you have to socially distance. And if you do that, you're going to have to probably shift, do a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday kind of arrangement for a while till we get our arms around this, which means that distance learning, uh, learning remotely is going to be part of any strategy. Yeah, the focus of your Washington Post op-ed is less what states and school districts are doing now, but rather what they need to be doing going forward. Uh, you say that they need to embrace distance learning, not just because of the types of practical considerations you just acknowledged, but also because you see it as the long-term future of schooling. What do you mean by this? Well, I'd love to get to a point, the aspiration for our country ought to be that time is the variable and learning's the constant. If you turn the system on its head, you would do that. You would say every child, we're not going to allow um, third grade level readers in sixth grade. And we're not going to hold back uh, young people that could, could learn far faster. Uh, a, a study that may have come from you guys, I don't remember, but 25% of all juniors are capable of taking college level work, but only you know a small percentage do. A system that would be, uh, you know, would be flipped on its head would say, we're gonna make sure that those young juniors can be able to start accessing college level work. And we're not gonna have the kind of social promotion policy that passes kids along. In, in that system, 
you're customizing the learning experience and you have to have online learning to be part of that strategy where the students become masters of their own learning and where teachers are, are the coach, if you will. They're guiding that process. I'm sure you're going through that right now as a professor. You're, you're, you can't teach in front of a classroom, so you have to develop unique strategies for, uh, for each student. Now, your students are going to Harvard, and so you don't have the big gaps, you know, big uh, wide array of uh, learning challenges. But teachers um, should embrace this idea because it, I think it, it should be empowering for them to be able to, to teach in this fashion. And while we're in this pandemic, um, the, uh, there, there, there really is no other option to, than, um, than to start this process. If, we just, if, if you're going to try to do online learning to, to replicate what exists in the classroom without innovating, I think that would be, um, you're going to see major, major uh, gaps in learning accelerate. And Michael Horn, one of our executive editors on a recent episode of this podcast, warned against exactly that and worried that actually a lot of what's going on right now in terms of distance learning may leave people with a bad taste in their mouth because it is an attempt to just take what was being done in person and putting it online rather than seeing the technology as a tool for the kind of personalization that you just suggested uh, is so powerful. Um, so you're suggesting school systems really need to embrace that logic that technology can be a powerful tool for personalization and learning. I guess the, the two things that give me pause in that regard, uh, the first of them is just that fully online schools and courses, at least those that have been evaluated rigorously so far in both K-12 and higher education have a, a fairly dismal track record. And the second is that I don't think we can lose sight of the fact that schools also play a very important custodial role in our society, something that I think we're, you know, uh, is being brought out in full relief right now by the current situation with buildings closed. So, you know, both of those observations lead me to have less enthusiasm than I otherwise might be for sort of saying we need to run full speed into the distance learning uh, field. How do you respond to that? I, I, I agree with you. I don't, um, I'd love to get to the day and we will get there at some point where, where schools are open, where uh, learning takes place in schools. But uh, my aspiration would be that if you can achieve more, you should be allowed to do so. And if you're not mastering the material, we ought to make sure that we organize ourselves in a different way to make sure you do as a student. And that requires uh, technology. It can be done in the classroom and it can be done at home. In fact, it needs to be done in both. Uh, the virtual learning is, the record is spotty for sure. Uh, but what, what we're talking about is something different. This is a blended environment. And the socialization that goes on in schools is really important for parents and it's important for students as well. Um, but gosh, I mean, if we are holding back students that could master material far faster um, just because we did it this way 100 years ago and 50 years ago, I think we're missing an opportunity to make sure that, um, that our competitive posture going forward uh, you know, is, is stronger than it is today because we're not doing as well as other countries in the world and we need to do far better. So um, part, of the, part of the challenge then is, okay, if you're gonna move to this system, shouldn't we make sure that every child, irrespective of the level of income or their family structure or whatever, has access to um, a device and access to the internet and a great country like ours 
you know, ought to be able to do that. We spend billions of dollars on technology, but we've never had a national strategy to say that every child should, is deserving of access to high quality education in the classroom and at home. What do you see as the most important barriers to moving in this direction? Uh, and is there an opportunity in the midst of this crisis to sort of set some of those barriers aside? There's a lot of barriers. One is the technology, access to technology, and that can be resolved if we have the will to do it. Second is the teacher development, just how teaching takes place. Is this is a this is a game-changing kind of approach, and it will require with patients a lot of, uh, of training, retraining of, of teachers. Our schools of education have to adapt to this as well. Uh, and then you have to move to a system of measurement that is different than end of course exams. Uh, or end, you know, the, the standardized test at the end of the year. That's the tricky part, you know, because then you get to the point where how do you, are you going to give up accountability by moving to this system? And I would argue that accountability uh, is really important, particularly for the lower achieving kids that are tragically left behind in our, in our system. So the transition to this model uh, has all sorts of perils associated with it as well, and it'll require changes in law in many places. Uh, and a new mindset across the board. But I think it's worth pursuing because uh, we're in this, the middle of this where if you just try to keep doing the same thing over and over again, where you're not having access to schools to the extent that uh, we're, we're used to, you're going to have to try new things. And I think this is the time for innovation to, to rise up. And, you know, maybe a few of the rules are waived in, a, in an emergency kind of situation. Maybe there's going to be uh, new innovations tried in one place that's different than another. I think that's America at its best. And I think we ought to embrace this, this tragedy uh, for the potential of improvement. And how much of it is about resources? In the op-ed, you talk about the money that schools receive uh, on an ongoing basis in order to invest in technology. You mentioned the $13.2 billion the federal government has already provided for education right now, suggests that some of that can go into the technology realm. But of course, right now, advocates are, are pushing for much more on the order of $250 billion for state and local government with a focus on K-12 education. Um, is, is that what we need to really kickstart this process? I don't know what the full extent of uh, the federal support should be. I doubt, I mean, when California Governor Newsom last week announced that the budget deficit in California is going to be $40 billion and uh, the state of Texas or state of Florida have budget deficits that are significant, but they may be in the $5 billion range or $2 billion range, you begin to believe that maybe the bailout shouldn't be just to bail out old practices that um, there ought to be a minimum support for sure to, to operate the schools. And um, whether it's the 13 billion or, a or more, I don't know. I don't have the, the facts to be able to make that determination. But I do see it as an opportunity to also invest in the things we want more of, rather than just invest in the um, whatever was existing in the past. I think you can balance that. Budgets are gonna be, they're gonna be challenged beyond belief. In, in Florida, we, we've been devastated by um, the lack of uh, employment. But think about this, the corporate tax scholarship program, which is the largest in the country, requires corporate taxes to be paid. And we don't have corporate taxes. So we have an additional challenge of funding public education, but also 
the likelihood is that we're going to see significant reductions in the in the support for the largest uh, school choice program, private school choice program in the country. And of course, if the students in that program simply switch back to the traditional public schools, that only aggravates the financial challenge that those schools face. Exactly. So every state's going to have unique challenges like that, and financial support from Washington is important. But that doesn't mean that that's the only thing that we should be thinking about. That's all I'm saying. I, I, I do think there just history's replete of examples that in a crisis, in a disruptive kind of environment, great things can happen. We can't just be so pessimistic we think that the end is near. It's a great segue into my last question, which is, what do you hope will be the legacy of the COVID-19 pandemic for American education and maybe even for American society more broadly? One aspect of the legacy will clearly be the loss of learning opportunities, the even more tragic loss of life that we're experiencing daily right now. But is it possible that some good will come out of it? I absolutely believe it. Um, for you know, out of the struggle, um, I think I hope that there's a surging of compassion and a recognition of, of you know, more purposefulness, if you will. Um, just the, the stories of uh, heroic efforts by frontline workers. You think of the schools of education, the teachers are doing heroic work here. Um, basically, from a standing start, they've been told to do something completely different. And last week was Teacher Appreciation Week. I think more people do appreciate teachers today. Um, I think there's, there's the potential of us reconnecting back to our friends and our neighbors and our families. Um, I find that in my own personal life, um, that I'm, I have done more connecting with more people isolated uh, from them than I did when I, you know, when I wasn't. I, I think that's a lasting benefit that, that will be very helpful. Uh, and I hope that moms and dads will see the, the incredibly important role that education plays in their, their child's future because they've been They've been learning math, you know, fifth grade math along with their kids. And, and uh, I've tried to help my, uh, my granddaughters uh, do some learning. It isn't easy. And parents, I think, have a greater appreciation for the importance of it and also how hard it's going to be as they start talking about reopening and how that's going to work. It's going to be dramatically different. And so a greater appreciation in general of, of the role of parents on part of the system and how... Uh, and, and appreciation of teachers by parents, I think is gonna be long lasting. My guest today has been Jeb Bush, former Florida governor and founder and president of the Foundation for Excellence in Education. Governor Bush, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks, Marty. Stay safe. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.